Pastor Paul. Thanks, Mike, and good morning, church. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I rejoice in seeing you gathered this morning as we have worshiped. Worship is is always such a meaningful experience for us. And often, I don't know if this is how it works for you, there is one particular phrase at times. And though I loved all of our worship this morning, there was that phrase in one of the songs that we sang, my heart has found a home in him. My heart has found a home in God. And more than anything else, that's what we want you to experience. And if you are here today and you, and you were to say, I don't know what it's like to to have my heart find its home in God. I pray that he'll speak to you powerfully in this service, but we would love to have a continuing conversation with you about that, not just about baptism and other issues, but what does it truly mean for you to experience having God as the very home and habitat of your heart? Once again, great to see you. It is Sunday, April 30th of 2023. God is on his throne today and all of God's people said, Amen. And as Mike mentioned, we do have a new sermon series that we're going to get into this morning. What he failed to mention in any of those announcements was the party of celebration that I'll be gone for three months. And uh, so my sabbatical does begin June 1st as well. And so this series really is going to lead right up into that. And then I'm looking forward for you to what this sermon series in the summer will be as we go through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's see. Aside from our pastoral staff, um, we're going to hear from Dr. Bob Piglow this summer, from Will Babarzi, uh, two of Tatiana Morris's sons, Timothy and Andrew, are going to be here this summer. So you have a wonderful lineup and opportunities to hear from a wonderful variety of voices who will proclaim God's word to you this summer as well. So we are praying for that and looking forward to what God is going to be doing in our midst this summer. Hey, Mike has just prayed, but let me pray again. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Now I pray that you will stand in my body and think with my mind and speak through my mouth all the things you would have us hear and say and do. In Christ's name, amen. Do you ever wonder if you're doing this thing called the Christian life right? For the short time that you and I will actually occupy space on this third rock from the sun, are we Are we spending our time and are we expending our strength and all of what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ? Someone may tell you that God's will for you is to live the big adventure. Go out there and make a huge splash and do something extraordinary for God. And we've, we've often been told that the road to significance is paved with big intentions. And we believe that sometimes without blinking. But what if, what if we are somewhat wrong? What if we have been misled? What if bigness is not the measure of greatness? What if being ordinary is the normal Christian life? Ordinary. 
I mean, the word itself sounds so dull and uninspiring. It has all the texture and feel of mediocrity. I mean, aren't we supposed to do extraordinary things because we have an extraordinary God? And it is not that I am against doing extraordinary things. And I am certainly never going to call us to mediocrity as we follow Christ. But I simply wonder if sometimes we miss the calling to be normal, to be ordinary, because we're always looking to do something that's notable. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul offered this rather intriguing piece of advice on how to live. The words will appear on your screen. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He said, aspire, some translations say, make it your ambition to what? To live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands so that you may walk properly before outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. That's a very different metric than what we're used to hearing, isn't it? Live quietly, mind your own business, and don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. And that should be your ambition. That should be what you aspire to. In the same way, so many of the stories of Jesus were about people doing ordinary things like sowing seed and plowing fields and managing money. In fact, in one story, Jesus spoke of a household manager's shrewd use of money and concluded one who is faithful in very little is faithful over much. In other words, what it seems to be that the constant refrain in the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Paul, the message of the New Testament is that if we focus our life on ordinary things around us, those things that are right under our, our noses, we will be giving ourselves to things that matter most. Maybe that's where the real difference is truly made. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, Paul said this, so whether you eat or drink, I mean, can you get any more basic than that? Eating and drinking or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Charles Spurgeon said it well years ago when he said, some men think that religion lies only in great things. It does not. For it also lies in little things. Take any one day of our lives. We eat, drink, rise in the morning, go to bed at night. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? There is nothing very particular about the day. Our life is made up of little things, and if we are not careful of the little things, we shall not be careful of great ones. If we do not mind the little things, the great ones will go wrong. So how is this for you? How in the midst of your days of paying bills and going to work and playing with kids and changing diapers and feeding our families, how do we... How do we do that in faith? Because it is faithfulness in the small things. In this way. And here's the theme where we're going to be going, not just today, but in the Sundays follow, that follow. The ordinary becomes outstanding. Many years ago, I had the privilege of hearing Dr. John Hanna, who was for many years a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and it struck me so much, it has stayed with me almost 30 years later when he said, if a man wanted to make a difference in his neighborhood, 
he should cut his grass, stay home at night, and take his church, his family to church every single Sunday morning. And he said, you do that every week for years, and you will leave your mark on your neighborhood. We're beginning today a five-week series we're calling Live Small. And our aim in this series is to draw your attention to the extraordinary impact of an ordinary, faithful life. In this series, we're going to see that living the ordinary Christian life is really powerful, even when it doesn't look like very much. And our text for this series, as we have announced, is Hebrews chapter 13. I invite you to open your Bibles to the 13th chapter of Hebrews. But before we go there, even as you're opening your Bible to that spot, let me give you something of a feel for the entire book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a sublime witness to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the author of Hebrews will say, is better than anything. He is better than the angels. He is better than Moses. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. That's why Jesus is superior to anything and anyone else. He is superior to the sacrifices of the old covenant. And, and throughout this book, the writer will compare the Old Testament sacrificial system and the offering of bulls and goats ad infinitum and then say, but there is one sacrifice, the one that Christ made of himself that lasts forever. We must never lose our grip on the undiluted supremacy of Jesus Christ. The preacher of Hebrews for this book really was essentially a sermon, was concerned, though, in the midst of all of that with his church, the church he was preaching to, sliding away from the supremacy of Christ. Most of them were Jewish believers, and they, so they were thinking about going back to Judaism because it was safer. He was also concerned that they would be unable to withstand the forces of a hostile first century culture. You think it's bad today, and, and it's heading this way. Here's a taste of what it was like then in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 and 34. He gives us this awful snapshot of, of what these believers were experiencing. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that is, after they came to Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Their conversion had led to, to hardship and persecution and loss of property and privilege. These believers were scared stiff because that's not a short step away from, from losing their lives. And so they began to avoid contact with others. They were also forsaking the assembling of themselves together. They were not gathering for worship because they feared that by doing so, they would become a target. 
Well, the date and the circumstances of this book may be different from our own, but the reality is very much the same because many Christians today are also afraid to declare the supremacy of Jesus Christ in a post-Christian world for fear of some kind of backlash. We are finding it hard, too, to run against the grain of our culture, especially when we're running so hard against it every day. And there are those who are close to quitting church. We have heard about this thing called deconstruction, where people are not just sort of evaluating and assessing their own faith, but they're quitting the faith altogether. And let's be honest, being a Christian in 2023 feels at best like a zero-sum gain. In chapter 11, the preacher called this messianic church in Rome to a deeply intense faith. And you know perhaps the famous chapter of Hebrews chapter 11, the the so-called hall of faith where we're told of these great heroes of our faith who, who lived in the midst of all of the pressure around them by faith every single day. We come to chapter 12 where he then reminds all of us that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses as if they have... They have filled the seats in the stadium and they're watching us on the track running the race of our faith in Christ, shouting encouragement to us to keep going. You can do it. And then Hebrews chapter 12 concludes with this awesome image of our God as a consuming fire. Let's read the full passage beginning in verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If you follow the train of thought throughout then most of the book of Hebrews, you may be surprised as you read the end of chapter 12, which is pretty awe-inspiring, and then you cross over into chapter 13. I mean, if the final words of, of chapter 12 is don't, don't quit your faith and don't quit assembling yourselves together and live intensely by faith every single day and don't forget that our God is a consuming fire, then how then should we live? Having said that, how do you begin chapter 13? And the writer takes us from fire to function in chapter 13. And in the verse six verses, he sets down a, a series of exhortations, encouragements. They're actually commands. And we're going to read them in just a moment, but I'll give you a heads up because when you first read them, they, they seem rather ordinary. I mean, after he closes chapter 12 saying God is a consuming fire, what can he say next? Well, this is what he says next. But then when you also read this passage with the backdrop to their persecution, then every phrase gets 100 volts hotter. Listen to it. Verse 1. Our God is a consuming fire, therefore, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for he he has said I will never leave you nor forsake you 
So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What a striking passage. In many respects, what an ordinary passage. In light of all the buildup through chapter 12, we, we come to this. And here the writer, the preacher of Hebrews sets down what it means for us to live ordinary, normal lives in light of a world that seems to be on fire itself. So how should we then live? How do we live as ordinary, normal Christians when the world is becoming less and less friendly to our, to our faith? I want to call your attention to the five marvelous acts that the preacher mentions in these opening verses. Again, they're commands. They tell us how to live. And here's the first. The ordinary Christian loves those inside the church. When the world is falling apart on the outside, what do you do? You love those on the inside. Let brotherly love continue. Every point that we're going to make, all five, are really the points of application. You don't have to search for what this passage and its relevance means for your life. The points themselves, the commands, the verbs here tell us. We love those on the inside. Let brotherly love continue. And of course, the preacher begins with love. You don't have to scale a mountain. You don't have to walk across burning coals. All you have to do, the writer is telling us, is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because this preacher knew that these believers who were struggling on Italian soil could withstand any blow against them if Inside, as a church, they were strong. And it's love that makes us strong. The word for brotherly love is, of course, the word Philadelphia. No bad jokes about Philly, okay? The word means to have a tender affection for someone. You're familiar with the word agape, which is a love for another person, even when that person has no redeeming qualities. Agape love, we say, is, a God, is the love that is most God-like, because even when you can't see anything good in that person you love, that's agape. It's, it's an amazing kind of love. But in comparison, this word Philadelphia is a love that arises from a pleasure that is found in the object of your love. So while agape love is not prompted by what the other person can give you or do for you, brotherly love is a love that is filled with the delight that the other person brings you. And that's the word he uses to describe the love within the church. There ought to be a sense in which we delight one another. It's a strong emotional affection for someone as if they're from the same family because they are. As Christians, we have been reborn by the Spirit. We've been adopted by the Father. We have become siblings, spiritual siblings, and therefore we have this special affinity for one another that has been implanted in us by the Holy Spirit. It is, it is a spiritual gene that God has put in us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves 
have been taught by God to love one another. This is something that God himself passes on to you and to me. We become a part of his family. We become spiritually related to one another, and we just we just love one another because we're, again, a part of the same family. We are bound to one another because we belong to Christ. C.S. Lewis said that phileo has the closest resemblance to love the kind of love in heaven because there in heaven we will be intertwined in our relationships with one another. So on in heaven, so let it be in the church today. Love is paramount. And every genuine worshiping community that gathers in the name of Jesus Christ is bound together by this mutual love for the other. Without brotherly love, there is no true community. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Brotherly love is the stamp of the authentication of our faith. The preacher is saying, I want you to love one another like you're actually related to the people inside your church. Even though you come from a variety of backgrounds and the people around you are different from you, love one another. And we all know, don't we? That's a hard thing to do because we annoy one another. We irritate one another. We disagree with one another. We, we step on one another's toes. Misunderstandings abound. And then we have to press in and have those very, very difficult conversations that God tells us we're supposed to have when things aren't going well with one another. And so we must expend ourselves and give ourselves in order to make Philadelphia alive and active among us. And it's that... It's that word, let brotherly love continue, that gets us. That tells us you have to keep going. When things get hard and our love is stretched and we're tested, don't stop. But keep pressing into it and loving one another. And brotherly love takes time and brotherly love takes an effort and we can't stop that. And on top of all of that, this messianic congregation to whom this message was, was being directed was experiencing, again, the hostility of their surrounding culture. And, and when the church dwells in that kind of dissonance, when it's so noisy outside the church, it often has two opposite effects inside the church. One, it can draw, draw us together, and that's good. But far too often, it drives us apart, and persecution can both purify us but get this, pure persecution can also cause us to turn against each other. I don't know why, but it does. Jesus in Matthew 24 said, when things get crazy in the world out there, brother will betray brother. And we become rigid and legalistic and cold. So when things are really on fire out there, don't grow cold in here. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. You know this. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another by this. All people will know that you are my disciples. What? If you love one another. Let brotherly love continue. To live small 
is to love those inside the church. Can I ask you what evidence exists in your life? What proof is there that you actually love those inside the church, that you love the brothers and sisters in Christ? There's a love for those inside the church. There's also a love for those outside the church. So he doesn't let us off the hook in any direction. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. In verse 1, the key word, of course, is Philadelphia. In verse 2, the key word is phylozenia, love of strangers. So there is this love for one another within the church, inside, that flows out into the streets and therefore affects everybody. Christians are to be known by their love for one another and for the other. The Emperor Julian was a severe persecutor of Christians. And in a letter he once complained about the Christians he was persecuting. And he wrote, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. These godless Galileans, as he put it, provide not only for their own, but for ours as well. They put us to shame in how well they care for those who don't even name their own Savior. Phagosinia was a distinctive mark of the early church. This love for strangers, it's also a mark of every spirit-filled church in every generation. Ordinary Christians will love their neighbors through acts of mercy and kindness. You see, love doesn't have to be astonishing to be powerful. It just has to be demonstrated. And hospitality is the ability to turn strangers into friends and friends into family. That's what's happening here, and that's what he calls us to. In a time of persecution, showing love to strangers was, was a pretty risky deal because there, will, there, were, there were informants who infiltrated the church. And by the way, that still happens around the world. It happens even in our own country, where in recent months, informants have been sent into churches to see what's going on to see what's being said. So it's a risky deal to show hospitality to strangers because they'll come in and they'll check things out and find out who's in charge and what they're saying. And no matter what the preacher says here, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. No matter the risk, no matter the jeopardy, show love. What a powerful message. For these believers, most of whom, again, were from a Jewish background, this was also a part of their story. When their ancestors were in Egypt and were considered outcasts, strangers in the world, God took them in. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, why? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I want you to treat strangers the way that I treated you. And in the same way, we were strangers and God took us in, Christ took us in at the cost of his own blood. And so, therefore, who are we to withhold the love of God to others? 
There's nothing theologically weak here. This is, this is theological orthodoxy. We are to love the brother and sister within our midst, and we are to love those outside. And can you think of a more enchanting reason to love the stranger than the reason he gives here for showing phylozenia? For some have entertained angels unawares. There is no other statement quite like this one anywhere in the New Testament. It probably points back to Genesis chapter 18 and 19, when in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham shows kindness and hospitality to to three persons. Two of them were angels. One of them turns out to be none other than than God himself. And, And Abraham, without knowing it, is entertaining the Lord of glory and two other angels. Those angels depart Abraham's presence, two of the angels. God stays back. Two angels go into Sodom. And it's there in Sodom that they are refused hospitality. No kindness shown to them there. So the the writer to Hebrews says, imagine that moment when he didn't even know it, that Abraham was entertaining angels and even God. He's telling us that if we're hospitable, extraordinary, amazing things may happen when we do the ordinary thing. Now, he is not telling us, and guess what? You just may look out and get an angel. He is not saying this happens all the time. The point is, we are to love no matter who it is, whether we end up entertaining angels or not. But he does hold out. He does dangle the enchanting possibility. Love those inside, love those outside. Number three, feel genuine empathy for for the suffering and vulnerable. Empathy. Verse three says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Most likely the preacher had in mind those who were imprisoned and mistreated for their faith that we read about back in Hebrews chapter 10. But I don't think it can only be limited to them because Jesus brings it out in Matthew chapter 25 when he tells uh, the parable of the, of the sheep and the goats of, of those who visited those in prisons. And he said, you know, when you did that, you were visiting me and they said, What do you mean? When were you in prison and we visited you? And Jesus said, whenever you do it to the least of these, you've you've done it to me. That's true empathy. Empathy is the capacity to feel the pain of someone else as if their suffering is yours. This is a powerful virtue. It is to share in their suffering. Right now, Christians in other parts of the world are being pulled out of their worship gatherings, their house church gatherings. Gasoline is poured upon them and the match is lit. And we are to feel that. We are to stand in solidarity with them as if it's happening to us. The point is God cares for the vulnerable, the persecuted, the mistreated, the imprisoned, and he wants us in the very same way to feel that kind of empathy, to speak up for the voiceless, to show genuine concern to those who are mistreated and are being harmed. I need to run on because we could be here all day. And there's probably a message on each of these virtues. In verse four, he takes us to the fourth command. 
honor marriage and sexual purity. Here's a pretty countercultural statement. Verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This is obviously an important passage for, for where we live today as Christians. This is one of those ways that we are running against the grain, especially when it comes down to marriage and sex. This was extremely important for the first century Christians. It's also extremely relevant for us because to follow Jesus simply means this. You will always be out of sync with the rest of the world when it comes to following God's commands regarding marriage and sex. Our, our culture doesn't value marriage. It actually devalues it. And it's easy to acquire an attitude about marriage that, that sort of runs with the culture because the voices of our culture and the pressure of our culture and the force of it is so strong, we may find ourselves sort of running along with it without even knowing it. Marriage is devalued and sex is highly valued in our culture. And when a society dishonors marriage, it's, it's possible for us to dishonor it without realizing it. And then when we sort of fall into the cultural milieu that, you know, hey, we're humans, things happen, that God's standards for sexual purity seem to be so off-putting and way too high for anybody to, to follow. And so the preacher sets down three points. First of all, simply again, he says, hey, honor marriage. Marriage is a sacred relationship ordained by God. He, he created it. He ordained it. He was the master behind, behind, mastermind behind this gift. And, and I realized that not everyone here is married and single. Being single is virtuous and it is to be lifted up and it is to be equally honored by us. But marriage is also to be honored by all. And the Bible celebrates marriage again because God's behind it. No government created marriage. Marriage existed before any kind of government, human government was ever instituted. But not only does Government sometimes interfere with God's design. But there are other ways that we can dishonor marriage besides just redefining it. We dishonor marriage with our words. When we take those pokes at our spouses, when we undermine marriage and we call it, you know, that ball and chain that is always with me. When we again disrespect our spouse in front of others, Hey, folks, let's honor marriage. Let's honor it and let's lift it up at all times, not like the politician who does so in order to gain votes for family values, but in our behavior and in our respect. Wendell Berry, who I love, the poet farmer from, from Kentucky, writes, a couple who, who make a good marriage and raise healthy, morally competent children are serving the world's future more directly and surely than any political leader, though they never utter a public word. You see, when, when we commit ourselves to the ordinary but noble realm of marriage and being devoted to our spouse, we are changing the world when we do it in the simple but powerful and ordinary way. 
honor marriage, practice purity, he says. For the marriage bed to be undefiled means that the integrity of the sexual relationship in marriage must be preserved. There's no way that you can get around what he is saying there. The Bible calls us, the preacher of Hebrews calls us to fanatical purity in every area of our lives. We may be stunned at the way our culture views sex, but in first century Rome, man, it was crazy. A man might have as many mistresses as he wanted. A Roman senator may be married, but he also may have a boy as a companion. And like then as now, Christians don't get our standard of purity from the culture. We get our standard of purity from God's word. This is who we are to be. And it's common today, again, to hear that humans were not meant to be monogamous, but, but God has a completely, wholly different standard. If you're married, you stay committed to your spouse for life and you avoid all other harmful distractions. If you're single, you live your life fully to God in an act of almost, well, what we could call celibacy before him. Honor marriage, practice purity, and remember judgment day. Here's the sober reality, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The two terms refer to sexual sin that violates the covenant of marriage inside marriage and also any activity that violates purity on the outside. God sees everything and he takes notice. And he takes this seriously. And I think what the writer, the preacher of Hebrews is simply saying is that we live all of our lives, but especially in regards to the sexual integrity of our lives, quorum Deo, before the face of God, every single day, he sees everything. And so live your life in light of that. Live your life in light of the coming judgment. It could be a judgment now, but we know it's also certainly a judgment that is to come. Who who is impeccable in this, no one, none of us. And so I love the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor violers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he goes on and says, and such were some of you, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified by the blood of Christ. There's our hope. There's the hope for every single one of us in Christ. I got one more. Well, the preacher of Hebrews has one more. You ready? Five are ready. Be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. How do you live the ordinary, normal Christian life? Be content with what you have. Keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Probably no need to unpack that, is there? It's pretty clear. In fact, Augustine looked at that 
passage hundreds of years ago, this passage about purity in verse 4 and money in verse 5. And he said, people in the world are promiscuous with their beds and stingy with their money. Christians are to be stingy with their beds and promiscuous with their money. Verse 5 is a word against covetousness, this love of money that he speaks of. This, again, was written to people who were living in fear because they could lose everything that they had. They may not know where their next meal is coming from. They could starve to death. And, and he says to them, be content with what you have. Well, I don't have much. Be content with what you have. Well, I have more than I need. Well, be content with what you have wherever you are. Notice This verse is not speaking against money itself, but against the coveting of it. The Bible does not frown on money, but the love of it. You know 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. It is the love of money that is, don't miss that key word, the root of all evil. It's the love of it. To love money is to love it for what you think it can provide for you. You think it will give you security. You think it will give you ultimate safety. You think it will ultimately provide for you for every day, for the rest of your life, and money doesn't give you ultimate security. We usually think if I have just a little bit more, I'll be happy. If I have just a little bit more, I'll be safe. If I have just a little bit more, I'll be okay. And this does get to the core issue behind so much of our discontentment in this life, this passage does, because what lies behind all of those statements is fear. We struggle with discontentment because we're afraid. We're afraid that we'll suffer because we won't have enough money for something we really need, that we won't have enough money for groceries, that we won't have enough money for rent or mortgage. We won't have enough money for our kids' braces or for college education or for health care. We won't have enough money for our retirement. I mean, is my money going to run out before I do? And discontentment like that is like a mushroom. It grows in the dark and dirty soil of fear. And we fear we won't be able to get all we want or that we won't amount to anything and and maybe that we'll be left all alone. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, be content with what you have. Then notice what he says, for I will, I, God speaking, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God speaks to our deepest fears and says, you have me. I am with you and I will be with you and I will never leave your side. I will always be with you no matter what you face in this life. And in the original, that last sentence contains five negatives. I will never, ever leave you, nor will I never, never, never forsake you. That's what that verse literally says. You can't pile up enough negatives to turn it into into anything else, but God is saying, I am there for you. In other words, when you have Jesus, then the absence or the loss of anything will not devastate you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So many people go up and down in their lives. I mean, they're like that elevator, just going up and down based on our circumstances, based on what's happening at any given moment. And we are controlled by those feelings as we go up and down. And he promises, beloved, to help you and be with you through anything. And so every day, here's what we have to do. Every day we have to decide whether we're going to listen to God who promises to be our helper 
or listen to our screaming anxiety, our unhelpful comparisons, or all of our frustrations and choose contentment. And make no mistake about it, contentment is a choice. It's an everyday choice. Be content with what you have. If he blesses you with more, so be it and be promiscuous with your money. This is the ordinary Christian life. After all that he said in the first five or 12 chapters, these are the five commands he begins with in chapter 13. There's more to come. But what I want you to be captivated with as, as we close today, but as we continue on in this series, is that the world is impressed with what is big and shiny and popular, and God seems to really, really delight in what is slow and steady and small and often hidden. George Eliot, in her classic novel, Middlemarch, writes, the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been as half owing to the number who lived faithfully in a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. The good that fills this world has been left by those who have lived a faithfully hidden life. A hidden righteousness. Things that nobody else will see. The writer to the Hebrews calls us to live small. To be ordinary people seeking to be faithful in these ways and as more that we'll see, but to be faithful in our time and in our place. God, yes, hear me, calls us to make our lives count. But to do so, he tells us to live small, impact the world right in front of you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thanks for bringing us to, to this conversation this morning. Uh, because it is a reminder, Father, in the midst of, of the craziness outside and sometimes the difficulty maybe even inside the church, you have, you have set our bearings straight. And while there is more to come to describe this life that you have called us to live, It's possible that all five of these points speak deeply into each person's life today. Maybe it's really one that you have called us to right now. It's as if the Holy Spirit has thundered this into our ears and deeply into our hearts. Hear this and respond to this and live this way with gospel intentionality through the empowerment of Christ by the power of your spirit. Father, we know we, we can't even live this ordinary life in Christ on our own. We need you. And then, Father, as we seek to live small, to impact this circle that you have put us in, may all the glory and honor go to Christ. 
who gave his life so fully for us. Therefore, we live for him. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let me invite you to stand.